What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another edition of the Jays for Days podcast. I'm Josh. He's Josh. We got Jays Jumpers, Jaron Jackson Jr., John Morantz, Joe Johnson's Jaw Rafts, of course. We've got Jays. We got them for days. Josh, how you doing? Can I be an old man yelling at clouds for a second? Sure. <laughs> I, I don't think there's too much to actually discuss about all the realignment stuff, but I did want to make one point. Well, two things that go together. First, life would be better and easier for everybody if football just did its own thing. Or didn't exist, but go on. That too. <laughs> Second, I was reading this weekend that there is contemplation, possibly, and I think The Athletic has most of the reporting on this, of trying to set the new Big Ten team schedules in a way to benefit the elite Olympic sports at UCLA and USC. So, for example, UCLA softball team playing the better teams in the Big Ten instead of the bad ones so that it doesn't you know, bring their metrics down. Okay. If I'm the coach of insert bad, you know, Big Ten softball program here. I am furious at this idea that somehow I don't get the opportunity to play good teams, but UCLA does because we're compensating for UCLA because UCLA decided to join the conference at the expense of its other sports because of football. I know this is just the world we're living in and I need to get over it, but the fact that they're cherry picking the schedule just really irks me if that's actually what this ends up being i mean it's it's the direct result of the backlash i'm sure that ucla and the big 10 got from the ucla softball program like you need to give us something it's so i mean that's that's what that is but in the world of it's also not surprising in the right. world of, hey, let's do everything that we can to make the product worth more, not better. Right. No, 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 no. It's not about making the product better. It's making. It's about making the product worth more. And any any foundation of college sports is irrelevant to that. Whatever you got to do, regardless of anything that you have to sacrifice because of it, you do it. Even if it's this in the simplest terms of, hey, you play the teams in your conference. That doesn't even seem to be that much of a priority anymore. Because mm-hmm. you can't play all the teams in the conference because the conference is too big. Correct. Yeah, this is 2023 is the year of... of, of the 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 sports that I love the most just fundamentally stripping my love of them for greedy people. Like I don't I don't. It's been a long time since I've loved sports. Long time, and the people at the top of it who are greedy about it are the are the main the main reason why. Because because nobody yeah. actually cares about the 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 pedigree and the history behind sport anymore nobody mm-hmm. does and or just the things that make college sports different than professional sports right that that too so um it's super unfortunate but i at this point 
what I I'm not surprised. Yeah, I'm not surprised by is, anything. So gotta just accept it, move forward. Yep. Just want to yell at clouds for a minute there. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, it's it's preview time, which is kind of crazy, and it's coming a little earlier than it did last year, just because for the time being, it's still one podcast a week. So the the previews are coming around uh, a little bit earlier than they did last year. Same general principle. Um, Josh and I will do our own preview, and it'll be coupled not in the same week as it was last year, but it'll be coupled later down the road uh, by a conversation with someone who either covers a team in that conference, covers the conference uh, as as per usual, we'll have some some people on the show that that I'm sure uh, listeners will recognize. Uh, people who have come become staples in in those conversations over the last over the last few years. But this time around, we'll start the first six weeks of the previews. We'll just be uh, Josh and I discussing each conference. That gives us. Uh, a little more time for the previews to breathe and also a little more time to coordinate interviews and not have to not not have to change around schedules of when the conferences would have come out uh based on based on when those interviews can can, can be done and those conversations can can be recorded so six weeks of just us chatting about the power six conferences and then we'll move into uh conversations with those who cover the leagues and teams in said leagues now we're gonna do our best to guess which teams are in which leagues i mean <laughs> i i mean your guess is as good as mine at this point but we'll do our best to, to actually get uh to, to not accidentally interview a, a big 10 you know someone who covers a now big 10 school in the pac-12 preview but it's gonna be it's gonna be difficult anywho acc preview if you've been here before you know how this works break it down into a, a selection of categories to to try and hit on as many teams as possible but also not just kind of meander one team after another and not have any real structure for it. So, uh the team that you are most excited for is the first category, followed by the team you are most intrigued by. Then storylines is kind of the place that we can try and touch on as many teams as possible. Uh, and then we'll move to teams that could make the NCAA tournament and a winner of the conference because it wouldn't be a conference preview if we didn't pick a winner. All right, Josh. The team in the ACC that you are most excited for in the somehow it's the 2023-24 college basketball season. That is ridiculous. Um, but alas, here we are. Who's the team you're most excited for? That would be Duke. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just really excited to see how good this team can be. It's not very often you get a returning core that is essentially a starting lineup. Mm -hmm. Jeremy Roach, Tyrese Proctor, Mark Mitchell, Kyle Filipowski, Ryan Young. Plus, you've got you know three top 25-ish recruits, another one in TJ Power who's right behind in the top 30-ish range. So, yes, it's not you know, the recruiting class of last season. But you still have the Jared McCain's and Sean Stewart's and Caleb Foster's who are 
expecting to make a massive impact here. And oh, by the way, you have a starting lineup of returners that are also either super experienced, super high profile recruits. Kyle, you know, Kyle Filipowski is probably your ACC preseason player of the year, I would have to think. There's just a lot of things to be very excited about here. And then the other part of this is that group that's coming back clearly figured something out by the end of last season. They were a much better basketball team by the end than they were at the beginning. You could see the progress. Did they reach the expectations that they had? No. But that's a good foundation, and there's some some confidence to build on. Of We actually did get better. We're getting more comfortable. And now you throw on the talent that they're adding with all the pieces coming back, and boy, are they going to be good. I agree. I agree. Um, the other the other possibility is is Armando Baycott uh, sure. as an mm-hmm. ACC preseason yeah. player of the year. But I would probably lean Filipowski in that conversation. But but yeah, it's Duke is the is this season's look at the combination of high level recruits and re- returning talent roster. Right, it's been Kentucky in the past. It's been Duke in the past, and. This year, this year it's Duke. Like you said, you could put together a top twenty-five starting lineup with the guys that they have coming back, and then you add at least at two four, you know, two four seven sports for the top twenty-two guys in the in the class of of twenty twenty-three. Um, I there's a couple reasons I'm I'm super excited about Duke. Uh, one, I think there isn't a lot of redundancy between the returning talent and the recruits. I think, you know, Jared McCain is a little bit undersized at the shooting guard position, but that's definitely the place that I think he'll start with the, with his shooting abilities. I think he makes sense next to either Tyrese Proctor or Jeremy Roach in that backcourt. Um, Caleb Foster is my favorite recruit of of these four. Not necessarily the most talented of the four, but I love big guards, and he's a six five point guard that moves at a at a pace that I really enjoy. And I think he could be that he could fill a lot of different roles. And the fact that he's six five, he can kind of be on the floor with a bunch of different types of lineups. Um, Sean Stewart and TJ Power are both power forwards, but they're two very different power forwards and you can either put them with, you know, a very skilled technical lineup with TJ power and Kyle Filipowski in the front quarter. You can have this Uber versatile Sean Stewart, um, Mark Mitchell type, you know, this big kind of middle of your lineup that, you feel like you can kind of switch everything. If you throw Caleb Foster and Tyrese Proctor in there, you have four guys that are all over six five or and under six nine. So there's a lot of switchability there. So there's just there's a a lot of theoretical versatility that you can that just come from the different types of lineups you can put together. And that comes from the fact that you have you have four returning guys that you really like. And you can throw Ryan Young in there to to add, you know, five if you want to. But specifically Roach, Filipowski, Mitchell, and, and Proctor. And it's, it doesn't feel like you only have six guys between them and the recruits because two of them really play the exact same position that one of those returning guys already plays. Um, 
like there's no way that Duke's backcourt isn't awesome this year because they have four chances. And two yeah. of them are already proven college basketball commodities in Jeremy Roach and, and Tyrese Proctor. But it, there's just no way that they don't have at least two guys that are all ACC level guards. I just, there, there just isn't a world, even if one of those two guys returning struggles uh, at, at points this year, just they're, they're going to be deep and, They've got those. They've got the makings of a team that 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 can be really, really good. The final thing I'll throw out there, specifically Proctor and Mitchell, you didn't necessarily have spectacular freshman seasons in terms of doing something like Filipowski did, where you went, "Oh, he's just the best player on this team," you know. Uh-huh. But you give them an off season now after that experience, where they know what this is like, what. They wish they would have done differently preparing for last season, you know, skill development, all of that kind of stuff. You saw what they could do and you saw the potential. So mm-hmm. now you even have that upside as well. It's not just returning guys, but it's guys that are kind of equipped and, and set up to step into these bigger roles. And yet you feel like there is more to come from them as opposed to just you know, these players, you're very big on this, right? The players come back, but do they actually get better? Mm-hmm. I feel like there's all kinds of room for Mitchell and Proctor to actually come back and you start watching the season, you go, oh, they're on a different level than they were as freshmen. The last thing I'll say, and it's kind of been the thing that we point out every year in the Duke one and done era is the only thing I'm I'm a little bit concerned about is finding shooting consistently. Um, now there's a way in which you don't have to worry about this if TJ Power and Jared McCain come in. TJ Power kind of shot up the rankings late in his high school career because he became a really good three point shooter and really turned into a stretch four type player. If he and Jared McCain both come in and and shoot it well and Mark Mitchell builds on 35% from the three-point line and Jeremy Roach builds on 34% from the three-point line, then it becomes a lot less of an issue. But if if both of those returning guys are around 35% and it takes McCain and Power a while to start knocking down shots at a high level, then that can that could be a concern. I think there are good shooters on this roster. There have been times that we come into the Duke season and I'm not totally sure whether or not there are any good shooters on the Duke roster. I think there are good shooters this year, but it'll depend just how good they are as a shooting team will depend. I think a little bit on, on how quickly those, those freshmen translate into good college shooters. Yeah, because you don't look at any of the returners as their bread and butter being shooting. Correct. There are a lot of them who can, and, you know, Filipowski can stretch the floor. There are guys who can shoot, but yeah, that's a it's a fair point that need a little bit more consistency, a little bit higher conversion rate there from those guys. And then you have the other thing I'll just throw out there is year two of John Shire, which mm-hmm. is make of that what you will. Um, I think you got off to a strong start uh, in year one and 
And there's just, you know, building continuity in terms of how that program is being run under Shire. Okay, I am, if you're watching on YouTube, you're seeing me sink to the ground repeatedly in my chair because my chair is broken. So while you tell me about which team is most intriguing to you, I'm going to grab this chair to my left so that I'm no longer sinking over and over and over. I have selected Miami as my most intriguing team for a couple of different reasons. One, just simply what what do they do after last season? <laughs> They're going to get a lot of attention after a very, very good season in which obviously they nearly won a national championship. And you have Nigel Pack, Norchad Omir, Wuga Poplar, Bensley Joseph coming back. So it's not like you're replacing your entire team. There are obviously pieces that are gone. And you're also bringing in Matthew Cleveland, which is the other reason I'm really intrigued by this team. Uh-huh. Is it? I always felt like Matthew Cleveland was going to be the next guy in that list of versatile, sort of positionless Florida State guys who don't put up big numbers but become really good NBA players. Uh-huh. And it just quite hasn't happened that way for him yet. So now, new environment, what does he look like trying to replace some of what this Miami team lost? And then obviously... You can make a strong argument this was the best team in the ACC last season with the fact that they shared the regular season title, obviously the NCAA tournament success. So there's just a lot of interesting aspects to this for me, both from the roster this season and then obviously the added context of what they did last season. Yeah, I I th- see there's I, – I find Miami intriguing as well. They're not my intri- – they're, they're, they're not my most intriguing team. But they are definitely on that list for me, that short list, because on one hand, you lose Isaiah Wong, you lose Jordan Miller, you lose a lot of what you 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 lost the best player on your team. And Jordan Miller, I think probably the most underappreciated guy on that team, right? Definitely. The, mm-hmm. you, you talked about Nigel Pack and Isaiah Wong first, but that guy was just as good as those two guys. And then on the other side, like I, I think Nigel Pack, Matthew Cleveland, and Norchad Omie together. I think that's enough that like, that should be enough for you to threaten. Maybe not the top of this conference, but I, you shouldn't be like, I'm not sure Miami should be stressing about making the tournament, even with what they lost. That's a really, really solid place to start. For a team that, you know, maybe it's not a team that has a ceiling of one or two in the ACC this year, but maybe it's three, four, five. Um, that's that's lots of talent in those three guys, and that should be enough. Even though there's still a ton of questions about, you know, there's a ton of just productivity numbers that were put up last year that you have to replace. So there's that will always leave a question mark but i find that you know they'll be super they'll be super intriguing the other part is how do we feel about miami from last year if they don't go to the final four i you're also big on not determining just how good a team was based on their tournament run and miami was good last year don't get me don't get me wrong that's not what i'm saying i'm not saying that miami doesn't deserve to be thought of as a team that you know, twenty nine and eight, fifteen and five in the ACC. 
that's a good basketball team, even if they lose in the first round. But it certainly is talked about different if they lose in the first round of the round of 32 and nobody really remembers their season. Instead, they went to the final four and just as a result, you're going to be looked at differently the following year. The other aspect of this real quick that I'm interested in, this team is going to have two tall players. <laughs> as opposed to one? Yeah. Sure. I'm just, that is one of the things I'm intrigued by. What does this look like without a true four-out, one-in system where obviously Matthew Cleveland has guard-like skills and is not a back-to-the-basket power forward, but mm-hmm. just the idea of there are two fairly tall players out there as opposed to four pure generally undersized guards very interested by that sure yeah yeah i think you're right it's it's as we get closer to the season i'll be watching how people feel about the expectations of miami because it's not the same team and the dynamics are going to be very different Mm -hmm. and it was one of those teams that had really clear flaws, but the thing that they did so well, they did so well yeah. last year. And I'm not sure if they're going to be truly elite at anything the way that they were last year. And we'll see how that translates. The team I'm most intrigued by is is, is the Tar Heels. The, no, the I was North Carolina. My other option. The, I nor- that's the North where Carolina going. Tar Heels. So let's run through it. Uh, gone. Leaky Black, Pete Nance, Puff Johnson, Caleb Love. Gone. Still here. RJ Davis, Armando Baycott. Not unimportant. Arrivals. Cormac Ryan, Harrison Ingram, Paxson Wojcik. Lefty sharpshooter. Sure. I'm in. Whenever you want a lefty sharpshooter, me, sure. Uh, Jalen Withers, Louisville transfer. Uh, and then you have Elliot Cadeau and one other transfer, but Elliot Cadeau is the five-star, the borderline top 10 recruit in, in the 2023 class. This is one of those teams that I have no idea what they're going to look like and, and what the ultimate, what their best five lineups going to look like and who their second most important perimeter player is going to be. And, you know, usually that's not a great thing. You know, it's usually we're looking at teams like Georgetown that I, oh my gosh, I have no idea, or LSU post Will Wade when it's absolutely nobody on the team and from the year before. And it's not quite, it's not quite that, right? Having, building around Armando Baycott and, and RJ Davis is not, is not an insignificant thing to 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 gloss over, especially when talking about the idea of starting from square one. You're you're not starting from square one, but a lot of the peripheral pieces are different, and especially when you had a high volume guard like Caleb Love, and that was so much of your offense, whether you wanted it to be or not. Without him being there, that's just there's there's a there's a lot of pivoting that goes on there. Um, clearly, Hubert Davis was said we are not going to be 322nd in the country in three point field goal shooting again. 
went out and got Cormac <laughs> Ryan, Paxton Wojcik, uh, Jalen Withers. All of them are spectacular three-point shooters, but they shot 41% from the three-point line at Louisville last year. It's pretty good. Um, Cormac Ryan was the worst of those, and no one's actually questioning Cormac Ryan's ability to shoot the three-pointer. It was just a, it, it wasn't a great year on, on a not great team. Um, at Notre Dame last year. So that's not going to happen again. I think Elliot Cadeau is really, really interesting. He gives me Carson Edwards vibes, his, his high school tapes. He's like the stocky kind of guard. He has the same kind of hair vibe that, that, that Carson Edwards had, especially in that last year that he was at Purdue. He seems to not be interested in anybody's respect when he's going to the, to the front of the rim. He seems he he'll, he'll try to poster absolutely anybody and Carson Edwards would absolutely try to, to poster anybody, but he's, he's super interesting as well. There's a lot of, there's a lot of guards here, whether it's your veteran college shooters and kind of off ball guys, um, but it might be Elliot Cadeau that's the best equipped to have the ball in his hands as the facilitator and the instigator of this offense, which I think is super interesting with, you know, even with all of the veteran backcourt presence that they have, he still might be the guy who's best suited to, to run the offense, but it's, it's all fascinating to me. Um, I want to hear your thoughts on how Huber Davis has built this. And then I have kind of a bigger thing that I want to talk about that that is another part of why this is all very intriguing to me but i want to hear what you think about this roster i am mentally prepared to fall in love with elliot Cadeau. sure i'm, I'm already getting myself ready for that and i kind of like the the carson edwards comparison in terms of yeah he gets downhill and he makes things happen which is a really interesting dynamic for this team that didn't do a lot of that last year <laughs> mm. a lot of dancing with the ball last yeah. year Elliot Cadeau is not really about dancing. He's about attacking. And the other part of his just game... Just to be that clear, I, not actually comparing him to Carson Edwards in terms yes. of his impact. Just, yes. by, just by the way. Yes. I wouldn't... I'm not, I'm not disrespecting Carson Edwards like that. That's, that's one of the like seven most impactful relative to his team guys in the last like 10 years in college yeah. basketball. So not actually... But he, he has the same vibe, 100%. And what I love about him is that He's kind of equipped to do everything, which is why I want the ball in his hands. Is obviously he can score and he can attack the basket, but he's not locked into that. He can shoot the ball a little bit, at least. We'll have to see how good of a shooter he is, but he's at least comfortable in that space. And he, I feel like he has a really good feel in terms of playing in the pick and roll and actually doing the point guard things. Even mm-hmm. if he's not a quote-unquote traditional point guard because he's so electric with the ball in his hands, right? Carson Edwards wasn't a quote-unquote point guard either. No. But you can make that work. But the the thing I keep coming back to is this team needs somebody to make good decisions with the basketball. Right? That's what we kept hammering home the past two years. I watch Elliot Cadeau, and I see a guy who makes really good decisions with the basketball in his hand and has a great feel for just how to operate an offense. Mm-hmm. And he's super talented, so he can do, you know, if you need 30 points from him, he could probably go get you those 30 points because you can't really stay in front of him. But also, you know, he throws alley-oops. He finds guys in transition. I, I just see a complete, 
again, not necessarily maybe a true point guard. Maybe he's not playing point guard in the NBA. We'll have to see. But I felt much better watching Elliot Cadeau highlights and how he could help this offense run than I did with Kale Love and RJ Davis as your ball handlers last season. Yeah, and I think... And he doesn't... He has a little Cole Anthony in him, but not in the way that... To your point, because that was kind of the other... I was like, this kind of... This this feels <laughs> familiar. But the more I watched, the more I felt like... And to all of the, the points that you're pointing out there, that I feel like he's going to come in and do a little bit more than that. Like, we stumbled into Cole Anthony just kind of being the dude... And that's all he did was score. And you saw UNC have a very real ceiling that year as a result. And maybe that's that's been the issue the last two years. Is when you have guards that are talented but relatively one-dimensional. Mm-hmm. And kind of are redundant. I'd love to have... I suppose if I'm picking one of the two, I'd like to have R.J. Davis, which is probably why Caleb Love isn't there anymore. But I don't need two of those guys. And I don't think we're in jeopardy of Elliot Cadeau just being one of those two high-volume, poor decision-making guards that have been in that backcourt for the last couple seasons. Yeah. The other thing I want to touch on is... This is an important year for Hubert Davis, I think, in his not in the we could be seeing way out in the distance the finish line of Hubert Davis's tenure at UNC, because I think he bought himself as long as perhaps he might just want with a Final Four run when he did it. But I think, like, we're going to find out what was a fluke. <laughs> Which of the last <laughs> two years was a fluke? It's a great way to put it. And and I have a couple, a, a couple ways to, and, and not really the last two years, just the last 22 months that <laughs> yeah. didn't include a two-month run. So So check this out. From February 8th to the end of the season in 2022, there were 13 and 3. They lost once in the regular season. They lost to Virginia Tech in the ACC tournament. And then they lost to Kansas in the national championship. They were 13-3. and In the other 56 games that UNC has played in Hubert Davis's tenure, they're 36-20. and They're 8-11 and against ranked opponents. And three of those victories came in the NCAA tournament in that run. So otherwise, because one of those losses was to Kansas. So there, he's 5-10 and 10 against ranked opponents over those two years, apart from the 2022 NCAA tournament. And he's 36-20 and 20 as the head coach of UNC outside of the 13-3 and three run at the end of the 2021-22 season. Now, you can't take those things away from him. That's not, I, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But it's a fair question because right now that's the that's the defining factor of Hubert Davis's short tenure at UNC thus far. But there is an argument that the other the other fifty six games are really what 
his tenure at UNC has been about. Has been about frustrating, feeling like your talented teams are less than the sum of their parts, that you can't get it through your players' heads to make better decisions with the basketball. And hey, Caleb Love, maybe not another contested 29-footer, right? And that's what last year was dictated by to the point where you went from an NCAA, from a national championship runner up to being the first team one. to being the only team ever to be the preseason number one team in the country that didn't make the NCAA tournament. And all of that to say this year is we're going to get to the end of the season. And based on how this UNC season goes, we're going to, there's going to be more discourse about Hubert Davis as the UNC head coach, I think in one way or another, because you have two polar opposite conclusions to the year, at least. Um, And as a result, two polar opposite feelings about Hubert Davis's first two years at UNC. And I feel like this year we're going to get an idea of which one we feel like was actually more legit. And and I think that is super intriguing to kind of have that discourse over this UNC season um, as we go through it. Here's the other part, too. He basically got a do-over with the roster. Mm. Right. Now, you keep Armando Baycox. Armando Baycox one of the most dominant big men in college basketball. R.J. Davis, obviously, a very good college basketball player. But like you said, clearly there was a philosophical decision made to do this differently. <laughs> if this doesn't work, it's not just, okay, these are kind of the players he inherited and they decide to stick around and maybe they, they were just too stubborn and you can, you can make a case for and you know, right? Maybe they just got too confident to the point where it was arrogant after making the national championship game. There are reasons you can come up with as to why it's not on Hubert Davis, everything that happened last season. This team is is his making because of the transfers, mm-hmm. right? His recruits now, 100%, all of that stuff. So I'm right there with you that, and if it's another train wreck, I will be very curious to see what kind of leash and how much patience North Carolina has. Not that, not that jobs are in danger at this point, but if this team, again, is that bad, we're having a very different conversation. No. And that bad in a bad conference. And we're, I'm sure we're going to get to that here, storylines, in just a second. But it's it doesn't feel like this is going... And last year wasn't the case, really, either. Not at all. So it's not like they're a team with high expectations, but they just ended up being the team that lost more than they yep. won in the big 12 because somebody has to. Mm-hmm. It's they can't hide behind the deep nature of their conference, at least yep. not this year. So it's going to be very obvious one way or another. And, and there's only one outcome that I think will be, acceptable to the general public like if they go 21 and 13 like we're gonna have these conversations again because they shouldn't go 21 and 13 they should be better Mm -hmm. than that yeah storylines what do you got for me 
first one, does somebody run away with this thing? And I'm looking at you, Duke. You had five teams that won 14 or 15 conference games last season. Just right? crazy. This, yeah. Jumbled mess from beginning to end. And as you were just alluding to, nobody was totally convincing. Clearly Miami was good. Duke was very good by the end of the season, but obviously they had some stumbling blocks in there and were not consistent from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And then you're talking right about your, your pits of the world, which great story, good basketball team. Is anybody really terrified of what Pitt did last season? You know, but that was the opportunity that the big, or this the, off season. <laughs> yeah. That the ACC presented because nobody could just do what Virginia typically does and put together instead of 14 or 15, you know, 16, 17 mm-hmm. wins, right? Because even Virginia, again, very good basketball team. Did they put fear in you like teams that Virginia passed? No. Mm-hmm. And that's not including North Carolina, those five teams, to your point. You look at this thing on paper and there's Duke and there's everybody else. But you could have said the same thing last year if you would have been told that North Carolina wasn't going to be what people thought North Carolina was going to be, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like somebody filled up, you know, stepped up to fill that gap and really pushed Duke. Duke just also didn't have, from a regular season standpoint, the season that they were expected to. Does that change this time? And there are also... Right, some teams in here that had really good seasons last season that you're looking at and going, not so sure they can replicate that. Uh-huh. So, to me, the first storyline is just, can, for example, can North Carolina hang with Duke? Does Duke let people stay in the conversation? Or is Duke up two games pretty early and they just kind of coast to a, a regular season time? Yeah, my, I have like the, the cousin of this storyline is, is, does anybody feel close to Duke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And not even necessarily from a who wins the conference perspective because I'm not totally sure I care if and maybe maybe somebody will just be on that level, but I'm not totally sure it absolutely is mutual that someone else wins this conference and I actually feel like that team is as good as Duke. Um, if that makes any sense at all, because from a talent perspective, nobody is especially close and we've done this dance before with Duke in the regular season and they just make silly mistakes. They lose at home to NC state. They, they lose a game at Virginia tech that you should win. If you're as good as Duke was supposed to be in that hypothetical year, but they lose to, to to Virginia Tech anyways, and then UNC or Miami or Virginia then gets that game at Virginia Tech, and it's all way closer than it probably should be. Mm-hmm. So, so one, do I feel like anybody is anywhere in sniffing distance of Duke in terms of quality of team? And what goes with that is... Can Duke can Duke just just go take care of business and win sixteen games? Because if you get to sixteen, I find it really hard to believe that anybody's going to catch you. 
mm-hmm. and maybe 15 in this particular year, but 16 for sure. Can you just go out and beat 16 teams that you should beat and, and win this conference? It's not something, as we've touched on a gajillion times in the past decade, it's not something they do very often. Yep. What's next? My second one is kind of what happens for the encore here. Talked about Miami earlier, but I'm more curious about the teams that we started last season's preview talking about. I believe one of my storylines was the coaches on the hot seat. (laughs) And I know we talked to Brendan Marks about this too. And then look what happens. Pitt, phenomenal season. NC State, really good season. Clemson, good season. All three of those coaches might have saved their jobs. Yeah. So now what? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Is there a long-term impact of that season? Have these programs actually made progress? Or was that a one-off and we are going to see a much more familiar version of the ACC standings where your top four teams are something like Duke, UNC, Miami, and Virginia? Mm. That's all. I, it's so hard to get to like maintain momentum when you're those mm-hmm. teams. It's so hard. Yeah. It it was already difficult. You know, you'd have a season like Georgia Tech a few years ago when you have Jose Alvarado and the ACC Player of the Year, and you kind of catch lightning in a bottle for a season. But then those guys leave, and you're back to. I mean, Georgia Tech was 15 and 18 yep. last year, and to and me, the that co- and the oh, coach sorry. of that team is no longer there. Mm-hmm. You're right. Josh Passner is no longer the coach at Georgia Tech. It's just so hard. And then you add the fact that those guys, a lot of times, are going to take that opportunity. One moment, amateur podcaster, going to turn off my my phone. There we go. Um. Especially when it's a it's a program that doesn't have a history of being at the tippity top of the conference over and over again, those players like to parlay that into going to a place that they're going to have a better chance of being even better the following year. It's just it's just so difficult. It's or, so difficult. Or you get a situation like Pitt last season where a lot of players ended up there because of the opportunity to play a, a big role and right, kind of the second or third opportunity, kind of a fresh start mm-hmm. one season. And now you're talking about Blink Hinton as your only notable returner for that pit team that was so good. Right. And so it's a very different conversation. I'm sure we'll get to this a little bit as we sort of run down the teams at the end. But everybody else is gone. Yeah. So you had a terrific season, and that group worked really well together because they were super experienced and knew what it took to win college basketball games. But there's no way to build on that because you don't have the personnel. You're still kind of starting from scratch. Kind of in that conference-wide conversation, ACC finished seventh at Kempom last year. Seventh. That's unacceptable. Unacceptable. Um, it is. It's totally unacceptable. I mean, you're right. You're right. The Mountain West was a better conference at Kempom last year than the ACC. Duke, Virginia, 
a Final Four team and not to mention the team that was the number one overall team in the preseason eight people. And the Mountain West was better last year from a Ken Palm perspective. I don't think this is this is not the year they return to national prominence. What I'm curious about is right, Miami, great season. Virginia and Duke, they're 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 typically a part of when the ACC is good. So we'll leave them to the side. Clemson, twenty three and eleven. Pitt, twenty four and twelve. NC State, twenty three and eleven. I don't think anybody cares when it comes to how they feel about like like if 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 there's a team like I don't know Kansas State in the Big Twelve and they have a year like that and there's a there's a jump from a team that's maybe a little unexpected in a conference like that, or it's, it's mostly the big 12, but even like a conference like the big 10, it, it seems like people care. It seems like people then contribute that to how good that conference actually is. And I'm not sure anybody was actually doing that last year with those teams. It was more, it's like, yeah, Clemson won 23 games because the ACC was bad, right. not Can because you, they were good. Because you can flip it and say, well, somebody had to win the games. Right, exactly. Yeah. In the same reason, in the same way of the Big 12, well, somebody has to go 5-13. and 13. That's mm-hmm. just the way that it works. Somebody has to go. Now, now granted, there were there were six teams, five teams between 15 and five and 14 and six in the conference right. last year, but that was much more of a commentary on somebody has to win them rather than somebody has to lose them. And I like, does that, does that start to change that this year? I, I'm not totally sure that it does. Does the ACC just keep going kind of in, in this direction of, you could have a couple elite teams at the top of the conference, but you're never like, are we ever going to get back to the days where you feel like there are nine really good teams in the ACC, the way that we feel about the big 10 pretty much mm-hmm. every year, but even you just if never it's want not to play a road game, <laughs> right? Even if it's not because it's like, there's an elite team in the ACC more often than there's an elite team in the big 10, yep. but the big 10 has the depth that the ACC hasn't had in a really long time, uh, relatively speaking. But, you know, seventh at Kempom last year. They haven't finished better than fifth since the 2019-20 season when they finished fourth. I'm sorry, fifth. They haven't been a top two conference since 2017-18. Um, and they haven't been Kempom's best conference in the sport since 2006-07. and And... I'm not sure this is the year that we start to I'm not sure this is the year that we that we flip that feeling but but do we start going in the other direction maybe it's in the way of actually Miami's really good again this year and maybe that's just a team that we can count on being really good because that's part of the Big 10's depth they just have seven teams that you can count on them being really solid like even when Wisconsin who wasn't very good last year but even when Wisconsin has a roster that you're not super inspired by, they're still going to be really hard to play. And it's still a team that's going to be top 50 at Kempom. And they're just going to put together a respectable season. And there are like seven of those teams in the big 10 mm-hmm. that you don't even have to worry about it. Sure. Indiana might be a little disappointing, but it's like a disappointing team. That's still like a top 60 Kempom team. And 
you, you know, ricochet shot at Indiana, but you get what I'm saying. There's mm-hmm. just so many of those teams and maybe this is the year that some of these teams that we don't think are going to stack the stack, the building blocks actually do, whether it's a Clemson team, a Pitt team, an NC state team, whoever it might be a Miami team that we just talked about. It'll be interesting what kind of just how good they are on the back end of a final four appearance maybe we start to turn that in the other direction or maybe not we'll see you ready for my final one yeah i've got one more as well yeah simply the new eras the new eras are you are you channeling taylor swift right now are you eras that was 100 percent right unintentional i want to make that very clear wow <laughs> Just not only do you have a couple new coaches, but you have a couple new coaches I'm very interested in for different reasons. Obviously, mm-hmm. Adrian Autry at Syracuse, somebody not named Jim Beheim is coaching the Syracuse men's basketball program. <laughs> you know. And what does this, and we'll get to talking more about Syracuse later, but what does this look like? Do they dare play man-to-man um, defense? You know. um, 1975-76 was the yeah. last time that wasn't the case, by the yeah, way. Yeah, thank you. There you go. I don't think I need to... And obviously, Adrian Autry knows that program inside and out. There's a reason he is the person succeeding Bay, mm-hmm. Jim Beheim. But that's a big deal, you know? Mm-hmm. Instead of talking about Hubert Davis taking over for Roy Williams, John Shire taking over Mike Krzyzewski, we're talking about the change at Syracuse. And then Michael Shrewsbury at Notre Dame. I'm a huge Michael Shrewsbury guy. What he did at Penn State was phenomenal. Obviously, Notre Dame didn't go great last season. It had kind of been on the downturn. You kept saying, well, if they get everything to come together, that could be a really good basketball team, and it just never came together. Mm-hmm. So he's got a a massive rebuild on his hands and kind of just wiping the slate clean and starting over, which is what he did at Penn State, and he did a terrific job. And obviously, they were a very good basketball team, made the NCAA tournament, all that stuff. So it's not just two coaching changes, but it's two coaching changes that to me carry an extra level of significance because of the brands, the history of the programs. And also, as you were just talking about the fact that at its best Syracuse is up there, at least causing some chaos in Mm. the ACC. Right. And Notre Dame is one of those teams that when the ACC is at its best, you can just kind of count on to show up and be an NCAA tournament team. That hasn't been the case recently. Louisville. Yes. Yes, exactly. Same idea. Mm -hmm. So, that's the other storyline for me is I'm very excited to see what these new coaches can do. Yeah. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. Um, the last thing I have is there are a couple of, there are a couple of inter, inter, intra. There are a couple of transfers that transferred from one school in this conference to another school in this mm-hmm. conference. And they might have real impact on who is like the fifth and final team to make the NCAA tournament or the sixth and final team to make the NCAA tournament that I just wanted to mention. The first one is Matthew Cleveland from Florida state to Miami. I think Florida state's going to have a bounce back year, but also they just because the ACC isn't going to have that many true needle mover games this year, at least not, it doesn't look that way going in. They, that that bounce back might just mean they're on the bubble and 
Matthew Cleveland not being there could be the deciding factor. Um, Miami could struggle some in this post, you know, in this post Isaiah Wong era. Seems like a much more impactful era than <laughs> when I say it like that. Um, but what kind of what kind of impact does Matthew Cleveland have at Miami? And then another team that I think could be in the bubble conversation is Syracuse. And JJ Starling made it yep. made a jump from Notre Dame to Syracuse. Both of those guys, Cleveland was thirteen point seven points and seven and a half rebounds per game. Starling was never anywhere near as good at Notre Dame as as Fighting Irish fans hoped he was going to be, uh, 11.2 points and three rebounds per game there. So still a productive college basketball player. Um, just a couple of, of former highly ranked recruits making moves inside the ACC that I think when we get to the end of the season and we're talking about bubbles and we're talking about those teams that could make the NCAA tournament in the ACC, uh, that that those those type of guys might have a an impact on that. Tyler Nickel, also a top 60, 90, uh, uh, a UNC transfer to Virginia Tech, which is kind of on the the back burner, I must admit. It was Starling and Cleveland that kind of uh, prompted this storyline, but uh, but Tyler Nickel wanted to mention him as well. Yeah, there are, and there are a couple more as, as well, and obviously we already talked about Jalen Withers. It is interesting that, yeah, when and you're Withers, going through sure. kind of looking at the, the NCAA tournament teams and the the biggest additions and subtractions to some of those teams, you go, Oh, right. That, that's a lot of guys who have played in the ACC before that are now at mm-hmm. new schools. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in that more, more specifically with those teams that I think, right. Louisville is going to suck. Notre Dame is going to suck. Those guys had, you know, guys who went to a team or I guess one team in particular that, you know, UNC is a team that has aspirations of winning this conference. It's teams like the Florida States, the Miamis, the Virginia Techs, the the Syracuses of the world. That I think are all going to kind of be in that conference, that same kind of, are these teams actually good? Somebody has to make the tournament kind of conversation uh, when it comes to this conference. So we'll see. How many teams can make the tournament, Josh? <laughs> Josh comes swinging with 14, with, with 14. I said 10. You said 10. Okay. I said one, two, three, four, five, six. I have eight. Okay. That could make the tournament. So as this usually goes, we'll go through the, I'll, I, I'll start reading my list. We can pause and talk as necessary. Um, and then once I get to the end of my list, you can add the two that that I don't have on my list. Be- um, before you start, I would like to say this 10 comes from, the I don't have a lot of confidence in most of these teams, so the gap between ten and you know five is just so mm-hmm. small that I went well. I could see that team finishing sixth because I don't necessarily believe that other team is going to finish fifth. More than mm-hmm. I think there's going to be ten good teams in this conference. There are three teams that I'm absolutely confident will make the tournament. That sounds about right. Conference. There are three. <laughs> And there are six teams that I feel like could make up maybe the other two spots that, right, right. that this conference gets. Yeah. Three if we have a good season. But but I'm kind of in that same in that same realm as well. Okay. Uh the obvious ones, Duke and UNC. Mm-hmm. Those teams can make the tournament. Uh you'll be <laughs> are shocked. Are you sure? 
I'm positive. Um, Virginia, Reese Beekman is back exercising an extra season. So that's, that's a W. I feel like Virginia could have been in a much sketchier place coming into the season if he wasn't on this roster, but he is. Uh, Jordan Minor, highly productive player from, from Mary Mack. He's kind of the headline transfer. Um, Dante Harris from yep. Georgetown as well. It, we are post Kihei Clark era. I feel like we could use the word error. Oh, era it's for an error. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I think it's interesting, though, because I, you know how I feel about your most important player being a man under six feet tall, just in terms of, you know, and Kihei Clark was never a liability d- defensively. And that's generally what I'm talking about when I talk about that kind of thing. But still, your general height going up. And therefore, some some versatility maybe going up a little bit. Um, my questions about Virginia revolve more around the fact that they haven't won a tournament game since they won the national championship in 2019, which is wild, by the way. Um, but I, I find it hard to believe that Tony Bennett in this conference doesn't find a way to make the tournament. Um, that was the third of my three teams that I am confident in their ability to make the NCAA tournament. Um, I have Florida State on this list. Uh, Cameron Fletcher is back after missing most of last season. That's kind of the, this is this is reason number one why you shouldn't be totally sad about Florida State. Um, Primo Spears transferring from Georgetown. That's a lot of points. And at least we can have a conversation about how meaningful any of his points he scored in college have been. But he can score. Um, Darren Green Jr. is back as well. I just, I like Leonard, Leonard Hamilton's an excellent coach. It is interesting when you look at his tenure, kind of, he, he get, goes to the NCAA tournament and blocks and he misses the NCAA tournament and blocks. Like he's had multiple, like four or five year stretches without going to the tournament. And then he'll have like this really awesome four year stretch. Sweet it's 16 been a couple, every season. Yeah. Right. It's been a couple of years since they went to the tournament. So make of that what you will. Uh, yeah. The- uh, they couldn't score, rebound, or defend the three last season. That that's not a recipe for success. Tough, <laughs> tough, tough, tough. Um, Virginia Tech can make the tournament. Hunter Couture is about what they have coming back, at least in terms of proven commodities in a Virginia Tech uniform. Um, I'm I would not like to ter- add Sean Padua in there too, just because I love both of them. Sure. Um, I'm not totally sure how good that team is going to be, but they could make the tournament. Um, Syracuse, we talked about J.J. Starling. Judah Mintz is back as their second leading scorer from a season ago. Benny Williams is back as well. Chance Westry, a former top 50 guy, um, started at Auburn. Um, Knee injury before the season, never really got any footing there. We talked about Adrian Autry as... I I think that breathes some life into the program. We were kind of in a spot with Syracuse where you need the coach to just be a little bit more excited and put a little bit more effort into like no fault of Bay. Like we said, Bayham had been the coach for 50 years and (laughs) 50 at Syracuse. You, it's it's hard to blame him for maybe not having the energy and the 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 desire to 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 rebuild a program yet again and 
And I feel like just a new coach breathing life into that, that kind of thing is, is a good thing. So I think Syracuse can make the tournament, Mr. 19 and 14 themselves. Um, Wake Forest, a.k.a. Gonzaga's younger brother with Afton Reed and Hunter <laughs> Salas. Uh, Central Michigan's Kevin Miller there after averaging 18 points in four games and then missing the rest of the season with a foot injury. But if you start with Afton Reed and Hunter Salas, like that's there are worse places to start. Uh, and then my last team is Miami. Nigel Pack, Matthew Cleveland, Norchad Omier is enough yep. to get you in the tournament conversation. Those are yep. my eight uh, and feel free to comment on any of those circle back or just add your two on top. So I actually have three that I'm adding. And I'm trying to figure out what the third one is. Oh yes. Okay. Cause I do not have Virginia tech. Okay. And, and, the other case you can make here is Rodney Rush is a highly talented recruit. He played eight games because of injuries. He was good in those eight games. If he's healthy, now you're talking about a Couture, Padua, Rice trio, and maybe you're on to something. My hesitation with Virginia Tech is this. They beat Duke, Virginia, Pittsburgh, Penn State, and Oklahoma State, and still lost 15 times, 12 of which came in conference. Sure. They just didn't beat the bad ACC teams last season. They didn't do mm. what they were supposed to. Now, could that change? Sure. They're going to get another opportunity because it's going to be a similar story. I just, there's not enough proven on that roster for me to to put them on this list. So the three that I had in addition, Clemson, PJ Hall is there. If PJ Hall is there, they have a chance. Mm-hmm. You've got Jack Clark coming in from NC State, Joe Girard coming in from Syracuse, two more interconference transfers. Yes, you lost Hunter Tyson and Brevin Galloway. Do I think they're going to make the tournament? No. They're probably number 10 on my list. But if PJ Hall is there, with what they did last season, I'm giving them a chance. Mm-hmm. And then the other two NC State, you got DJ Burns, Casey Morsell back. DJ Horn and MJ Rice have lined this interesting group of transfers. Again, with what they did last season, with what MJ Rice could be coming from Kansas, I talked myself into it. Again, do I feel great? No. But to me, they're in the ballpark. And then the other team, again, do I feel great about it? No. But Louisville does have Sky Clark, Trey White, and a loaded recruiting recruiting class led by Trenton Flowers. If you believe in Kenny Payne, it is possible this team finds a way to be sixth in the ACC and make the tournament. So those are my other three. Okay. Is there a long way to go for that to happen? Yes. What I will say, though, is they have, to me, they have talent to at least be considered in the conversation at this point. And I wanted to make, oh, the other thing I wanted to say about Syracuse. I am really, really high on the Syracuse team. You talked about J.J. Starling, Julie Mintz, Naheem McLeod, another ACC transfer. There's your replacement for Jesse Edwards. And you had mm-hmm. Chris Bell and Malik Brown, who were productive as freshmen on, obviously, what was a bad Syracuse team. So what does that actually mean? Who knows? But J.J. Starling, Julie Mintz, Benny Williams, and Naheem McLeod, with a couple other guys who have contributed to a Syracuse team before. Not a bad place to start. And like you said, just the idea of getting to start fresh, new energy. Of the, the sort of quote-unquote bubble teams that 
outside of maybe the four, if you want to put Miami in that top tier. Mm-hmm. Syracuse might be the team I feel best about. So, just going to throw that out there. I'm, I'm all in on Syracuse. Now, what that actually means, I don't know. But I will also, you know what, I'll say that Syracuse actually ends up making the NCAA tournament. There you go. How about that? How about that? Okay. I'm fine with all of those, except Louisville. Louisville has no chance. They, they had talent last year, too. Yeah. If I'm there were fi- there were, I believe there, in were, there were five top there were five top one hundred recruits on that team last year. Five. Not a lot of proven college basketball contributors, though. So. I mean, there are not a lot of. I mean, you just said, and they have a loaded recruiting class. None of those guys are. And to, and I guess Sky Clark didn't exactly contribute a lot either. But I mean, you go ask Illinois fans how they feel yeah. about Sky Clark as a proven college basketball commodity. I'm holding out hope. That's fine. I also don't have any faith in Kenny Payne, respectfully. We'll see. And there needs to be some things proven to be confident in that. I'm just open to the possibility of it happening and some lessons being learned from last season. Fair enough. <laughs> four and 28. That's incredible. Um, Louisville should never go four and 28 in anything ever, no. um, especially men's basketball. Anyways, uh, your winner. Duke. Yeah. Uh, most experience, most talent. I'm also totally sold on John Shire as year two. Now that he knows what this feels like, knows how to prepare, knows how to kind of navigate the season. He clearly showed an ability to improve a team during the season. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. Because he got better as the yeah. season went mm-hmm. on, too. Yeah, absolutely. Not just because his team got better. Yeah. I think they he all got collectively grew together. Are you ready for to call John Shire the best coach in this conference? No. Is he top two? No. Are you sure? Yes. Okay, then who, who who's your top three then? So top three is a different conversation than top two. So who's top two? Whatever. Leonard Hamilton, John... Tony Bennett. Okay. 100%. I'm not sure. I mean, Tony Bennett's one. Yeah. Are we totally positive that Leonard Hamilton is too right now? Yes. Okay. I would probably agree with you. I am he's probably I would, third though. I would be open to the possibility that if, if Duke does what Duke is supposed to, that coming into next season, John Shire is three. Yes. Maybe Larinaga has something to say about that. How do you feel about Jim Larinaga? Oh yeah, Larinaga would be three right now. Probably. I part of it is confusing with him because there are, I just feel like there are these NCAA tournament caveats. Sure. Right, because they kind of go up and down. It's not like they're consistent, but they have won a couple ACC regular season like regular season titles. They have had some good basketball teams. Also, right, I mean, this started with that George Mason run, and now mm-hmm. all of a sudden they just show up in the Elite Eight every season, it feels like, for reasons that don't exactly make sense. But yeah, right now, I would also throw Steve Forbes into that conversation. It's not like Wake Forest have been a juggernaut since he got there. So definitely open to some some maneuvering and some rising of John Chire's ranking this season. Okay. I'd probably put him at three right now. Maybe okay. four. Maybe. And I think he's closer to two than you think he is. We'll see how the season goes. 
Okay. When Leonard Hamilton misses the uh when 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 he misses the term, I I'm just kidding. I'm I'm not actually dogging Leonard Hamilton right now. It is interesting though. There's not a level of like it's either like we talked about earlier. Florida State goes through like they either go they're either awesome for five years or they're not any good for five years. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Not in a commentary on Leonard Hamilton, just like I don't think there's a need to have a commentary on Leonard Hamilton. He's a pretty universally thought of as a really good basketball coach. And the makeup of his tournament appearances is just doesn't match most people who are in kind of the same tier mm-hmm. of coach as he is. Yes. Yes. Anywho. All right. Anything else in the ACC? Yeah, we got to do my favorite part where we run down the teams we haven't talked about yet. All right, hurry. Yeah, Notre Dame, <laughs> uh, your top seven players are gone. You got Julian Roper from Northwestern, Tay Davis from Seton Hall, Keba Jai from Penn State, who I believe was Penn State's highest recruit ever. He's following Michael Shrewsbury. Is that enough to win a lot of games in the ACC? No. I do like the idea of this being built a building block for a team two seasons from now that Michael Shrewsbury has something to work with. It's just not going to translate to wins this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else have we not talked? We talked about Pittsburgh. The recruiting class is good. That's exciting. Again, you just look at that roster and there are so few proven commodities. I see that being a dramatic downturn after last season where kind of you got lightning in a bottle with all of the experienced veterans that came in. Mm-hmm. Boston College does return most of the team outside of Mackay Ashton Langford. That's a positive. Again, it's returning most of a team that struggled in ACC play. So, you know, they couldn't shoot the ball, couldn't defend the three, but at least they got some experience there. Georgia Tech, you got Miles Kelly, Dallin Coleman, Lance Terry. Good job protecting the basketball. Wanted to give them a shout out for their fundamentals. Now, they couldn't force turnovers, but they protected the basketball. Well done. Uh, so you do have some teams at the bottom of this conference that are getting most of their team back. You are you and I are kind of on the same page of what does that actually mean in terms of improvement. But in an ACC where there there are a lot of question marks across the board, maybe we get surprised by somebody. Mm-hmm. But that's all I got. Uh, Tony Carr is the highest ranked recruit in Penn State history. Kevin okay. Ng is second. Second, okay. Maybe somebody else had him. I might have missed that. Maybe somebody else had him ranked higher. I thought I saw that Perhaps. when he committed there, but yeah, he's That's on two four seven sports. So okay, who, so ESPN could have had him yeah. higher than Tony Carr. That's yeah. totally possible. Yeah, I don't know. They're just a you know he wasn't didn't kind of steal the show last season, but Mike Extruder's recruiting crown jewels is with him at Notre Dame. So. My I, I I find the all time commits row on every on everybody's page. Oh you lo- oh you love that fascinating. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Fourteenth <laughs> best recruit in Penn State history, Rasir Bolton. Remember when mm-hmm. that hit the fan? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim Frazier shouts. He's the Excellent. number ten overall recruit. I also love where like there's a little logo below everybody's name. Like what they either what the where, the organization that are part of now, if they did play in 
the NBA, which is interesting because like Lamar Stevens has been a Cavalier for like a while. So I don't totally understand why like Josh Reeves has a Mavericks logo underneath him, but Lamar Stevens has a Penn State logo. And was then, it a team that was drafted drafted him? Perhaps. Maybe that's it. Anywho. It's been it's been seventy seven minutes, so we should probably stop the podcast at this point. Um, what are we doing next week? Is it Big East? Is that what we do? Is it the East, and then we do the numbers? Is I that think. usually how it goes. I think that's how it goes. We can decide. We can decide later. You'll see whatever podcast pops up next Monday. That's what we decided to do. But uh, but that's the ACC preview. We'll be back next week for preview part two of six or of 12 if you want to include the interviews so long way to go before the start of the regular season but it is uh it's fun to talk about uh 2023-24 conference previews please subscribe to the jays for days podcast on apple podcast spotify and google podcast follow us on twitter at jays for days pod check out the youtube just type jays for days pod in the search bar and you'll find us right there um Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Jays for Days podcast. I'm Josh. He's Josh. And we will see you later. Mm-hmm.